This yes. is hell. All right, then. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. And in today's case, crimes, as in plural, because this is hell. And the great crimes behind today's fortune are crimes we sadly tolerate every day. Crimes that fit the definition of crimes against humanity, but are also crimes against our own humanity, as both put our beliefs in direct conflict with our actions. Are the crimes of poverty and inequality. Those are the crimes we suffer from on a daily basis. Yes, the effects of poverty include acts that would fall within how the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defines crimes against humanity. We witness the effects of the great wealth disproportionately accumulated by the wealthiest, 1%, and yes, one-tenth of 1%. The suffering it causes has become such a part of our daily reality that at times, we no longer even notice it, or we do our best not to as some sort of defense mechanism against recognizing the pain of poverty. And those who benefit from uh, profit and make uh, great fortunes from inflicting that pain, all with the help of a supposedly democratic government here in the United States that is anything but. But we all know, or so we are told, we all know that you cannot completely end poverty or make it so nobody is poor because that's completely unaffordable, a utopian fantasy that even if we could figure out how to do it, we simply don't have the resources to make certain nobody is living in poverty. But as our guest today argues, the belief that we cannot end poverty is built on a foundation of myths, mistaken beliefs, and outright lies. Today, we have the return of theologian, ordained minister, anti-poverty organizer, and activist the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who will be on to discuss her article at Tom Dispatch. We're living in a golden age of plenty for the rich. Liz is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Find out more about the campaign at their website, poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can follow the Poor People's Campaign on Twitter at Unite the Poor. We'll also talk to Liz about another article she had at Tom Dispatch, which was posted back in December, called Everybody In, Nobody Out, Dreams of Democracy This Christmas. Liz is director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which is committed to building a movement to end poverty led by the poor. She is the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the People, the Poor People's Campaign. She has spent the past two decades organizing amongst the poor in the United States, working with grassroots organizations like the Coalition of, Mo of Mokale Workers, the Vermont Workers Center, Domestic Workers United, the United Workers Association, the National Union of the Homeless, and the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. She is also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and a biblical scholar in New Testament and Christian origins. Liz was on the show back in October of last year when we talked to with her about yet another Tom Dispatch piece, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. You can follow Liz on Twitter at Liz Theo, L-I-Z-T-H-E-O. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey, and sitting in with her is Will Ippen. First, Lindsay, last week I started the show by 
saying how cliche it was to start every week's show by asking what you did the previous weekend, that I need to come up with a better question. So uh, until I do that, how was your weekend? <laughs> it was action-packed. Really? I guess. Yeah, I went to this. I went to this panel where the uh, Chicago Community Garden Association talked to the um, Metropolitan like Water Reclamation District, who are the people who handed out the um, uh, P- like PFAS compost, right. the, the contaminated compost. And anyways, uh, yeah, they just tried to tell, they had their scientists tell people not to worry. Uh, there's not that much in them compared to what's in the water <laughs> like it's just it's in the water you know like you're gonna spray it on every garden um is what i walked away with um so basically surrendering to the fact that we have pfos and you, you just have to deal with it yeah it was terrible i mean like <laughs> wow. the 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 ele- elected official i should look up her name mariana something like like of the MWRD, she just walked out right before the end, before like anybody could ask any talk to her. The end. They didn't let us ask our questions straight up. They had us write them down, and they had somebody uh. like field them and read them, and like it was. They barely answered any of them. It was terrible. So it was a great <laughs> exercise in democracy, is what you're saying. I developed a jaw disorder, a jaw <laughs> joint disorder afterwards. Because like. <laughs> your jaw was on the ground too much. No, because it was clenched too much. Yeah, because you're so angry, getting TMJ. No, it literally is TMJ. My sister has had that issue for a long time. But I told I told Will and um, Dan last week, like my jaw started hurting, and then on Saturday I was like, oh my gosh, my jaw hurts so bad. Like I can't chew or like talk to people. And I was like, I texted my sister, and she's like, yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) Like like, that's what I've had for like years now. I was like, oh no. That's really bad. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden my dentist is certified to be somebody who deals with TMJ and actually does Botox now. Why that happened in January, I have no (laughs) idea, but I know a whole bunch of people, all of a sudden their dentist got certified in January for doing Botox and related to TMJ. So Uh. maybe everybody's getting TMJ, maybe there's demand for it, or maybe... Dennis yeah, just want to make why more are we all so nervous and stressed out? I don't know. I know why I'm TMJ. not nervous. I know I'm not nervous and stressed out. That's because you gave us rutabagas and all sorts of different kinds of potatoes, and I think onions you gave us. So we did something we've never done before. We made Michigan pasties this week. It was the, the first time my unspouse, who is my non-wife for decades, tried to make pasties despite having family. Uh, from up in the Upper Peninsula where Youpers and their coal miner ancestors made pasties a local delicacy. So thanks for all the produce because it was an absolute success. It was the They were the best pasties I have ever had. And we did make gravy. We didn't put ketchup on them because that's just disgusting. That's awesome because I was like, oh no, what are people going to do with these rude Pasties. <laughs> pasties. Uh, yeah. Will, anything new about you? as you swing the mic over. Uh, my weekend was uh, pretty low-key, Chuck. Uh, caught up on the Rugby Six Nations oh, did you? tournament. Did yeah. you watch the France-Scotland uh, Scotland match? Uh, not yet. I'll be watching that on delay. I only caught two matches. Which, uh, what was the best match you saw? I was, surprised, I was actually surprised that uh, I, uh, Italy didn't look like they should be expelled from the Six Nations <laughs> for a change. Yeah, um, they usually do suck. Yeah. Yeah, for for years and years. Um, So that was the biggest surprise, I guess. But uh, overall, the field's been pretty uh, balanced. Awesome, man. I got to catch some this weekend. So uh, 
Lindsay, more important than the Water Reclamation District proving that Chicago democracy isn't really all that democratic and what happened in the Six Nations Cups, the Cup of uh, Rugby this weekend. What is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you giving up for Lent? It's an easy one. What are you giving up for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. All you have to do to see all of our stuff is go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And somebody over there has this week's hangover cure. Uh, I guess I'll just, sure. I'll just read it. Sure. Um, this week's hangover cure is not what it says it is. <laughs> There's a clickbait hellhole called Sports Kita that looks like it's written by a terrible AI program. In its story, Five Best Foods for Hangover That Can Make You Feel Better, the fourth of the five cures listed is, quote, water-containing fruits. But what they describe is not, in fact, water-containing fruit. Instead, they describe fruit that contains water. Exactly. I thought they were just <laughs> going to drop fruit in water, but that isn't what they did. <laughs> Oh, I was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't understand but, it. I was uh, like, what do you mean water-containing okay. fruit? And then they started talking about fruit that contains water. So it's they're two very different things. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the website that you should never visit asks, do you ever wonder why drinking the night before can make you extremely thirsty the morning after? This is because your body is begging for drinks as you're dehydrated. Given its high water content and plenty of amino acids, it is recommended to eat watermelon. See, which is a fruit that contains water and not water-containing fruit. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Alcohol use certainly has an impact on your liver, but amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, may be able to help help because your liver has been so busy processing all that alcohol. Strawberries, cucumbers, cantaloupe, and zucchini are additional fruits and vegetables that can be beneficial for this purpose. But zucchini and cucumbers are not vegetables, as the final (laughs) sentence implies. (laughs) I hate this website so much. It then crashed my computer. (laughs) (laughs) That makes this week's hangover cure. Not water-containing fruit. But fruit that contains water, as suggested by what we can only hope, is a horrible AI program and not a miserable human being. We have news about a past guest on the show and what it apparently takes to have your outstanding journalism recognized by the New York Times. Back in April of 2021, we had the distinct honor, and I mean that, of speaking with reporter Cerise Castle, author of the 15-part investigative series, a tradition of violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knock-la.com. Cerise tells the story of how organized criminal gangs be- became a norm- normalized thing, normal thing within the LA County Sheriff's Department, dating back to the 1980s, and how such gangs within the police have sprung up across the country with little to no scrutiny by the media, despite community members complaining about these police gangs for years and the media simply dismissing their reports. One of the places Cerise's investigation 
was not covered was the New York Times. They did report her findings, which are crucial to the story, but they were cited as from the Los Angeles Times, which was, in fact, quoting Cerise's work. Cerise did make the New York Times, however, but not for her reporting on the L.A. County Sheriff gangs. Instead, she was mentioned in a profile about her girlfriend, an actress who is currently writing for the TV series Abbott Elementary, who is also a community organizer. Her name is Brittany Nichols. The Times reported Ms. Nichols was an editor and researcher on A Tradition of Violence, a 15-part investigative podcast about gangs in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. The podcast, which was reported by her girlfriend, Cerise Castle, has, according to Nichols, further cemented my belief that the Sheriff's Department should be abolished. Not just us, but listeners find her work so compelling, find Cerise's work so compelling, that when Tradition of Violence began as a podcast last October in 2022, we had to have Cerise back on to reintroduce her work to our listeners who heard, heard it on the show in the past. And they had selected her 2021 appearance as one of the best interviews on the show that year. And we played it during the best of uh, end of the year best of series that we play every year around the holiday season. But we also wanted to introduce new listeners to Cerise's outstanding investigative work. And it actually worked as her second appearance turned a lot of people on to her uh, first podcast that she was on here on This Is Hell, as well as her writing and her own podcast, again, Tradition of Violence, which all led to quite a surprise for me last week when I saw a full page ad in The New York Times on page five of the front section featuring a picture of Cerise Castle announcing she was a co-recipient of this year's American Mosaic Journalism Prize, which is awarded for long-form narrative or deep reporting on stories about underrepresented and or misrepresented groups in the United States. So, the New York Times ran a full page, front section, page five ad, congratulating Cerise Castle for winning a journalism award for that acknowledged her reporting that was never cited in the New York Times. However, they did mention Cerise's award-winning investigation in passing when doing a profile of her very talented girlfriend who is a writer on a sitcom and is thus allowed to give her opinion on police abolition. So congratulations to Cerise Castle for winning yet another award on your outstanding investigative journalism and how it reveals there are gangs inside the police, not infiltrated by gangs from the outside, but the cops creating their own violent criminal gangs from the inside. And who knows, maybe someday Cerise won't have to have somebody pay for a full full page ad in the New York Times for her to get mentioned in the Times or for her girlfriend to be writing for another critically acclaimed sitcom to get in the Times again. Let's just hope that it's just her investigative journalism that actually makes the Times someday. Coming up on the show, the twisted normalization of poverty and its suffering that enriches the wealthiest. We will tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper has a PhD in history and will be giving us a peek at the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. And Lindsay, what is Sebastian talking about this week on the show? 
Oh, you're actually getting willed. Oh, this all right. Well, that. let's hear. Um, so this week for the final installment of Past Inside the Present Black History Month, Sebastian will talk about the unholy marriage of Jim Crow and the Red Scare, as well as about how things weren't that great in the North either. Just in case someone thinks Seb is unduly focusing on the sins of the South. <laughs> Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell as our first guest this week writes today in one of the richest nations in the world nearly half the population is either poor or a single four hundred dollar emergency away from poverty the moral and cognitive dissonance of such a reality can be difficult to fathom as can the numbers this reality should put us all in a mental conflict between our beliefs and our reality what we hold to be true and the actions we take every day in response to daily suffering that just keeps growing as it continues to be normalized in our misguided society but unfortunately it, it has not here to talk poverty with us again returning to this is hell reverend dr liz theo harris returns to discuss her latest at tom dispatch poverty amid plenty a world fragmented by inequality welcome back to this is hell liz Thanks so much. It's great to have great to have you back on the show. Uh, so you point out that the 2023 World Economic Forum in uh, Forum in uh, Davos, Switzerland, was organized around the theme of cooperation in a fragmented world, and the topics for debate were all worthy choices: climate change, COVID-19, inflation, war, and the looming threat of recession. Glaringly missing, however was any honest investigation of the deeper context behind such an epic set of crises, namely the reality of worldwide poverty and the extreme inequality that separates the poor from the rich on this planet. But that's also not a discussion, this may not be a discussion amongst billionaires, but that's not a discussion amongst a regular establishment media. We don't see, even though the suffering, we see it happening each and every day around us, Liz, that's not a discussion that we see whether it's on MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or PBS, it doesn't matter. That's not a discussion we are having. What do you think is the reason why we are not having a regular discussion about poverty as it continues to get worse and worse in the United States and globally? Well, I think over the past you know, five decades, um, past generation, the word poor has become basically a four letter word. Um, and this is at the same time as increased, you know, polarization and 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 between wealth and poverty and in, increased inequality. And I mean, I have to believe that um, it's not that we don't have the solutions to address poverty. It's not that poverty doesn't impact a lot of people. Um, it's not that we don't even have the resources to enact those solutions. But I think that, um, you know, those in power, uh, the wealthy, the corporations, you know, those that have been elected uh, pay a lot more attention these days to the ultra rich and, and to passing policies that that protect their wealth um, instead of lifting from the bottom so everybody can rise. And so, you know, we don't hear it in our elected um, uh, kind of electoral conversations. Um, we in the Poor People's Campaign and at the Cairo Center have been pushing for, for years and years for us to have an honest conversation about poverty. You know, in election seasons, um, a third of the electorate is poor and low income. Uh, and yet, um, you know, 
it's it's rare to hear poverty come up um, when folks are running. And if it does, often there are promises that are then not kept. Uh, so, you know, what we need in this country is, um, uh, you know, to change the narrative, um, to actually get us talking and uh, and then seeing the solutions and then enacting those solutions that cause poverty and misery um, amongst, you know, uh, uh, you know, before the pandemic, 140 million people. Um, that's a whole lot of people um, living in all kinds of communities across this country. Um, and it's a reality that has been here for a long time, and it's really only getting worse. Is is that focus on what are the needs of the wealthy, is that important to polit politicians and political parties because of the reality of the way that campaigns are financed? I hate to sound too much like we did when we started the show in 1996, but is it there's the problem that they ha that polit politicians and parties have to focus on the needs of the rich if they are going to get the kinds of resources they need to win political campaigns. Well, I think that the the that it is for sure that money talks in politics, um, and that you know we saw you know after the twenty twenty election when you know a. a there was record turnout. Folks, you know, showed up to vote for politicians that were talking about raising wages and protecting voting rights and um, talking about, you know, expanding health care and all kinds of issues that impact um, the poor and low income the most. Um, and and then we had uh, folks like Kirsten Cinema and and Joe Manchin, who the Chamber of Commerce, you know, went after and and basically, uh, you know, Put, put pressure on on those politicians and on others to to not pass the kind of policies that had been promised, you know, in that election. And so for sure, money talks. But but the reality is, is if a third of the electorate is poor and low income, if in some of the battleground places and races, you know, there's upwards of 40 to 45 percent of people who are poor and low income who are in, engaging in those elections, then then if you're actually there to be elected to serve the people and to serve the needs and interests of the people, um, you have a huge amount of your base who are directly impacted by poverty. And what we also know about the, the role that poverty and inequality plays in the society is that um, you know, that that when you actually live from the bottom, when you actually invest in in programs and wages and policies that that help poor and low income people that that actually redounds to the benefit of the whole society and so so it is true that right now our politics are so connected to to the money that's in them and the contributions for campaigns um but it's also the case that there is a sleeping giant of poor and low income vo voters that can change every election outcome um, when and if we kind of come together and vote together and organize together and 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 make the nation and our political candidates and officials actually hear us. So at Davos this year at the World Economic Forum, many of the most powerful people in the world who benefited from the crises that they caused, who profit from poverty and inequality, met to figure out how to cooperate. So what does that mean for what they see as a fragmented world? What do you think that cooperation means for the rest of us? Because I'm afraid that that cooperation means, hey, look, we're making a fortune off of crises. This is going to be great during climate change, too. 
So I do think that those in power and with with great wealth are are seeing many of the same problems that those of us without great power and wealth are seeing. I mean, the the issue of climate change is real and it is wreaking havoc on lives and livelihoods. You know, the the kind of crisis of legitimacy in terms of a, a democracy that is impoverished, um, you know, is is impacting those uh, whose whole lives uh, have been connected to to you know, democracy and politics, you know, when it comes to issues of um, uh, systemic racism, when it comes to, to other crises that are happening in our world today, uh, you know, war and the threat of, of nuclear annihilation, which um, we're, we're closer to than we have ever been in my lifetime, you know, these are problems that don't just impact regular people, poor and low-income people. They, they, they impact everybody. Um, but the, the reality is, is that right now, um, those in power uh, seem to be more willing to make a little money off of crisis and or not even a little money, make some money off of crisis and and, uh, you know, um, move on to the next crisis um, instead of coming up with the real kind of solutions uh, that are solutions that are coming from those who are most impacted by these problems. And so so in Davos, you know, they 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 tinker at the edges of talking about climate change and and inequality and war, um, but are not interested in um, uh, actually uh doing something that could systematically and systemically, you know, alter the direction that the world is going in. Now, who does have that power to change things is the people. Uh, what we look throughout history, it's when people, especially led by those that are most impacted by injustice, but involving people from all walks of life, come together, band together, organize together, and kind of push the people in power um, and, and, even very much against their will to 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 structure and restructure society around um, the betterment of humanity uh, that has happened that can happen that does happen um, and so so to me if we're looking for solutions to the crises that are uh, you know impacting us across this world um, we should look to to the the people who are at the bottom of society but who uh, as Frederick Douglass talked about, know when their pain is relieved. And so, um, so you know, I'm not looking to the leaders in Davos, you know, for the solutions. I'm looking to folks that are organizing in our communities today um, uh, who, who have not benefited from the crises that have been around us and who are not making lots of money off of them, but instead are, are figuring out how to kind of come together and organize together to, to be able to hold out the possibility that it doesn't have to be this way and life can be better for everybody. So why did it seem like uh, at least the media was far more upset with people who got checks during the beginning years, the early earliest years of the pandemics, when everybody was getting checks so they could survive. Why were they so upset about that, but not upset about the huge skyrocketing profits, the billionaires and multimillionaires like those who went to Davos this year that they raked in? Why be upset about what I'm I get a check for five hundred dollars or six hundred dollars. Why be upset with that when a billionaire is making even more millions, if not billions? So I think this is a really important point, and you know, it's surely one that mainstream media has really played into and 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 worsened. Um, where where instead of 
focusing our attention and and uh, and our outrage, you know, at the millionaires and billionaires, at those who have made trillions over the course of the past couple of years, while you know millions more people have been thrust into deep um, and deadening poverty. Um, we we what we hear on the media is you know over and over again. These couple hundred dollar checks, whether it's the child tax credit or the earned income tax credit, whether it's the SNAP benefits that are actually going to are set to expire this week um, and won't won't be extended, um, whether it's, you know, the, the 15 million people that are about to be thrown off of health care um, because of the lack of Medicaid expansion in any real way. And um, and then, you know, the stimulus checks, right? The uh, And all of these programs, all of these programs are actually vastly, vastly popular. Um, you know, Joe Manchin, who stood in front of um, and in the way of uh, extending the child tax credit and some of these other policies and programs, you know, talked about, you know, trying to attach work requirements and and just, you know, said that people were using the these checks, you know, to buy drugs. I mean, in, in the state that Joe Manchin is senator of, in West Virginia, you know, 70, 80 percent of people are supportive of all of these economic and, and social policies. Um, but that's not what we hear. You know, we hear uh, that he's doing this for the people. He's doing this on behalf of West Virginians. It's just not true. But because it's what becomes a part of our national dialogue, because it's what repeated and repeated and repeated, we, we start to think that that must be the case and that, you know, it, it's it's because workers made, you know, a little bit more money in the last couple of years as folks have started to organize and, and demand um, better better pay and better working conditions, that that's why we have inflation. That's not why we have inflation. Economists across the world agree, you know, it's it's because of uh, supply chain, you know, ruptures because of COVID. It's because of a war between Russia and Ukraine that the world is impacted by. It's, it's because of, um, you know, actually corporate threat theft where, you know, the richest are are just taking money and taking money and, and then putting pack you know, uh, nothing into the economy and nothing into society, but but taking these great profits. Um, and this is what has led to inflation. This is what has led um, to, to, you know, more inequality and more suffering. But but somehow the attention stays on on poor and working people and just regular folk um, who are just trying to get by. Uh, it's not true. Um, and because it's not true, it 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 doesn't have the kind of uh, life that that it needs to have, and so instead, you know, we we can we have to we have to expose these lies, and we have to, you know, connect with people, and we have to make sure that we kind of build the kind of power that, um, as Dr. King said, will make those in power say yes when they may be desirous of saying no, and and so you know that to me is is the task ahead of us right now. It was hoped that during this time of crises, because we both have climate change as well as the pandemic and war and so many other things, it was hoped that this, that a time of crisis might lead to deeper discussions about what is taking place in the world today. You were mentioning supply chain failures. What really seemed to reveal itself in the beginning years of the pandemic are, yes, supply chain failures, but that supply chain is determined by globalization. It seems to me, at least, that 
globalization fails in times of crisis because you're too worried about financializing your agriculture rather than feeding your people. So why haven't we had this larger discussion of the failure of globalization, that globalization does not work in a time of crisis, especially when we are facing worsening and worsening climate change? So I think it's, it is really important to, to, to point out that, that, you know, what the pandemic really exposed and, and deepened were these systemic failures, um, you know, because uh, indeed the economy is organized around the profits of a few rather than the well-being of, 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 of all people, um, you know, wrong decisions are made and, and bad policies are, are passed. And so it, I, I do believe, and I, I am in agreement with you that, you know, the failure of neoliberalism, of globalization, of, of you know, uh, 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 political and economic systems that, you know, again, uh, allow for a few corporations and um, mega rich folk to to really determine life for everybody, um, you know, surely failing us. Um, and I do think that there was a time um, uh, early on in the pandemic when people were starting to question, um, uh, you know, folks were, were raising different issues, including why is it that, you know, uh, we, we all of a sudden are paying attention to low-wage service workers now and calling them essential, but still failing to pay them enough and treat them with enough respect for them to afford all the essentials of life. And, um, and I think, you know, there were, there were, you know, whether when the United States after the, the killing of George Floyd, where, where, where thousands um, and thousands of communities across the country of people, you know, turned out and said, you know, this way of policing and of killing is just not just and not right. And I, and I think there, there, there have been moments we've seen glimpses of, of people really fed up with, with the system and with the way things are. Um, but, but then what keeps on happening is, is this narrative um, in the mainstream media um, that really covers up uh, a lot of the um, questions and, and issues that people are taking with, with how things are. So, you know, again, it's, it's why your radio program matters. It's why, you know, folks uh, getting a different narrative out there matters um, because mm -hmm. if, if if we can't, you know, actually look at at what's really going on and um and be able to call out the the failures of of our systems and structures, um, then uh, it's going to be pretty hard for us to to be able to uh, refashion them into a way that works for all of us. We are speaking with Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who returns to the show to discuss her article at Tom Dispatch: Poverty Amid. Plenty, a world fragmented by inequality. As I quoted you earlier during the introduction, you write that today in one of the richest nations in the world, nearly half the population is either poor or a single $400 emergency away from poverty. The moral and cognitive dissonance of such a reality can be difficult to fathom, as can the numbers. What do you think the effect is on each of us and society more generally? when it comes to the need to attain this cognitive dissonance that 
clash of our beliefs and our actions of recognizing in the United States, the wealthiest nation in human history, half of us are 400 bucks from being in poverty. How do you think that affects our own humanity? So I think we are um, approaching a certain kind of spiritual death because of it. I think, um, you know, to have the means, to have the resources, um, and then to have those in power to choose not to use them to actually save lives, um, you know, that that does something to society, that does something to individuals. Um, you know, again, uh, what we know about uh, about living wages or about healthcare is that all of it um, saves lives, right? Um, you know, I live in New York City, and there was a study that came out before the pandemic that said that for for the years that we did not have a fifteen dollar minimum wage in the city, um, cost you know five thousand deaths at least over a course of a couple of years. Um, what we know is that. Uh, 40% of people without health care insurance are more likely to die than um, those that have health care. And yet, again, we're, we're at a Medicaid uh, cliff happening, you know, uh, as we enter March and April. Um, and so, so to have the actual solutions, to have the resources to back up those solutions, and then to not actually... Uh, pass policies or expand or extend policies that are are saving lives. Um, that doesn't just impact the people that are being cut off of healthcare or being cut off of uh, you know other programs or who are working for um, you know too low of wages and not a living wage. Um, that it surely impacts those people um, who are in the tens and hundreds of millions the most. But it impacts everybody um, and that. Um, it is a cognitive dissonance. It is, you know, a, a, an approach to a spiritual death. And, um, you know, we had better uh, do something about it in our society because um, it, it's, it's really uh, hurting our young people. It's hurting our, our elders. And um, it, and it just doesn't have to be. I mean, it's one thing if you don't have the resources. It's one thing if we were living in some kind of scarcity where you do have to kind of have Peter to rob Paul to be able to pay your bills. But that is not the case. In the United States, we throw away more food than it takes to feed everybody. We have about five or six abandoned houses for every homeless person, you know, in major cities across the country. We have, you know, um, you know, billions and trillions of dollars um, that that are not going to, you know, pay for for living wages for workers, but they could be. And and in fact, that would that would, you know, improve the economy and it would improve people's lives across the board. Um, and and so, uh, you know, living in this in this world where you have such abandonment amid such abundance, um, you know, is is not healthy for anybody, um, and we got to do something about it. Well, but you point out, uh, you you ask, do they recognize the deepest fragmentation of all? This is the billionaires and multimillionaires who are at Davos. Mm -hmm. Do they recognize the deepest fragmentation of all that caused by so much needless suffering and inexcusable gluttony? 
Yet our media, and it seems like many in the public, have a deep reverence for these multimillionaires and billionaires. And you write, over the last 50 years, CEOs have taken ever bigger chunks out of the paychecks of their workers, so much so that the average CEO now makes 670 times more than his or her employees. It tells you how far we've come, that in 1965, that number was just 20 times more. Meanwhile, the federal minimum wage, 725 an hour, or about $15,000 a year, has remained remarkably low, hurting not only those who earn it, but millions of other workers whose employers use it as the floor for their own pay scales. Bear in mind that if the minimum wage had kept up with the economy's overall productivity over the last half century, it would now be $22 an hour or close to $50,000 a year, which is pretty close to what MIT says is a current living wage. So why do we not only revere the rich who are getting richer and richer off of us, why have we only not only tolerated that shift in wealth, but many who have suffered from that shift still support the system within which they lost in that uh, shift of wealth. Why tolerate and why support a system and why even revere a system that's not working for you? So I think, again, this is a place where our politicians and media are are so much to blame. You know, we, we have been told for, for decades upon decades now that if we are not able to afford um, housing, if if we're having to, you know, um, choose which bills to pay at the end of the month, if if the kind of, you know, getting the, the right backpack and shoes for our kids is is not to be attained. It's our own fault. Um, it's not that this is how the economy is structured. It's not that that millionaires and billionaires are, are you know uh are kind of living off of of great superfluous wealth while while the rest of us are hurting it's that we if we just prayed harder or worked harder or had fewer kids or you know had you know it just you know lifted ourselves up um that we would we would be better um and so that you know, decades of basically not looking at actually how society is organized, actually um, not seeing the kind of structural, um, the way that poverty and low wages and um, and inequality are structured into our politics and into our economics um, means that, you know, when there are these PR campaigns where, you know, whether it's... Uh, Bill Gates or um, Elon Musk or or whoever who spend you know millions just on their public images alone you know they have you know all kinds of PR firms you know making them look like regular you know or stick it to the person you know but but whatever their kind of personality is you know that's been cultivated by PR um, and so. We instead, you know, revere them. We hear about, you know, all of the the great things, the the donations to charities that that the super rich are 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 um, are making, and we never are taught um, in our schools or in our media or in any part of society to to kind of question, you know, where is that wealth coming from, and and how. Um, is our own poverty or our own struggling connected to to you know um, those realities? And so, I mean, I think 
it's part of why um, you need, you know, you know, political education. It's part of why you need independent media and 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 media that that actually speaks to what's happening in people's lives. And it's why you need, you know, organizing and and power building happening on a community level because you can kind of break through these lies um, and 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 show people that it is not our fault um, uh, that you know that have been, that that the realities of our lives have been you know have been uh like they're structured into society not not because i you know uh didn't work hard enough or because i didn't i made some mistake or you know whatever it is um but you know that is real like that that kind of blaming of ourselves and and the kind of pathologizing of of who is poor and why people are poor um, that is just really the dominant narrative. And it's it's a dominant narrative that comes from kind of folks that are self-professed liberals and conservatives alike. I mean, it might sound a little bit different, but but in general, um, there's almost a consensus in our society that um, that poverty is an individual problem when actually um, inequality and poverty are are social problems. Um, and they're going to need social solutions to actually um, eradicate. And whenever these solutions are offered, as you know, what they're countered with are, are, are ideas of uh, fear and ideas <laughs> of instability or insecurity. In 2021, you wrote with a past guest on our show, Astra Taylor, millions of America's, Americans aren't just poor. They have less than nothing. The American dream is no longer owning a house with a white picket fence. It is getting out of debt in one of the richest countries in the world. Millions of people now aspire to have zero dollars. Now, much of this is because credit has become increasingly accessible. Uh, can we overcome inequality and poverty when we have an economic sector that is heavily dependent upon the public's accumulation of debt, when the market incentivizes debt? And, and, and when it comes to like, if you do make it so people don't have easy access to credit, the ones who are punished the most, we're told, are the poor. If we have any kind of change, the ones who are going to, uh, the ones who are the most vulnerable are, are the poor. So the ones who are going to be hurt by this, at the original moment that any kind of reform is put into place, are going to be the poor. So can we overcome inequality and uh, poverty when we have an economic system that is heavily dependent upon the public's accumulation of debt? And can we overcome this system of inequality and poverty when at every point it seems like the poor are being held hostage by the threat of reforms? So um, indeed, debt is a, a significant issue in our lives today. Um, and, and we would do well to realize that our uh, in the first couple of weeks, our society can afford to cancel debts of those who can't pay them. Um, and in fact, uh, it would be better economically for them to do that. Um, you know, in the first couple weeks of the shutdown of COVID, um, we saw the Federal Reserve bail out Wall Street to the tune of, you know, over a mil uh, over a trillion dollars. Now, that same amount of money uh, could have canceled all student debt, right? Um, so it's not that we don't have the resources. It's not that we don't marshal those resources in other ways. But instead of actually, you know, uh, helping people from the bottom up, um, 
you know, our Federal Reserve decided to bail out Wall Street. And and what then the bailing out the debt of Wall Street looked like was like giving better stock packages, basically, for, for the super rich. Now, we're told that um, that that this is the best for everybody, that this is the only way our economy can function. And and indeed, the global economy does need U.S. debt um, to, to function right now. Um, but that's because for, you know, 40, 50 years, people in the U.S. have been making less money, have been working more and, uh, you know, and have seen their standard of living lowering and lowering, um, you know. Right now, there is no scarcity worldwide, but there is a distribution problem. And so it's not that uh, we couldn't do it differently. It's not that we couldn't actually end all forms of poverty. It's not that we couldn't cancel all debts that can't be paid. Um, we could do all of it. Um, we just need the political will to make it so. And so, again, that's where movement building, that's where organizing comes in. And um and that's where kind of shifting this narrative and talking about the real issues that are impacting people and exposing the lies that that have have for too long been the dominant you know explanation to 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 our economics and politics and our society are. Um, but again, like we, you know, we we need debt because those in power um, want to make more money off of of the poor um, and. Uh, and and you know this doesn't have to be um uh we could we could live you know in cooperation um with folk actually um uh you know thriving um and not just uh trying to eke out a, a bare existence you write that despite the capacity to wipe out poverty altogether anti-poverty advocacy generally operates within two independent philosophical frameworks Mitigation and charity. Mitigation assumes that poverty is indeed a permanent feature of our economy, best alleviated by job training programs, fatherhood initiatives, and work requirements, but never to be abolished outright. Charity approaches poverty as a sad social condition that exists on the margins of society and treats people as at best pit pitiable and at worst pathological. Together, those two frameworks funnel billions of dollars in charitable and philanthropic giving to explicitly apolitical measures directed downstream from the source of poverty. While such giving does indeed help many impoverished people, it helps them meet their immediate needs, it does very little to confront poverty in its fullness or why it exists in the first place, and in most cases the help is inadequate given the need. No wonder the wealthy tend to be the biggest proponents of mitigating poverty through charity because to fundamentally address the problem would also mean addressing the unequal distribution of political power in our world. So what is there aside from mitigation and charity for us to do that can best help out those who are poor? Yeah, I mean, this is a big one. Um, and and I think it's not a popular one to talk about, you know, kind of critiquing charity and instead saying, you know, we we need justice um, because, you know, a, a lot of corporations get, you know, significant tax write offs. Um, a lot of folks feel pretty good by doing charity. But um, but, you know, more or less, there are are two ways of, of kind of looking at poor people. 
um, when you're when you're doing charity. It's either you're pitying them or you're punishing them. Um, when when again, the reality is is that close to half of the U.S. population is for a low income, and 80% of us at some point in our lives will experience a form of poverty. And so it's not that we just didn't do the right job training program. It's not that we just, you know, made too many mistakes. Um, it's it's clearly that uh, there are, um, are bigger issues um, at hand here. And so uh, when it comes to, you know, actually addressing poverty, um, it's going to take more than than charity and tax write-offs from the rich. Um, uh, it's going to be, um, you know, empowering and building a movement led by those that are most impacted by poverty, by inequality, by low wages, by the lack of health care, um, who then can, uh, in, in, you know, kind of looking at history, you know, not following uh falling far from it, um, building a kind of movement that can actually change the priorities of the nation. Um, and, and that, you know, is happening today. I mean, we see uh, all of these uh, workers at Starbucks and Dollar General and other um, uh, other institutions organizing. We see, you know, folks, uh, you know, marching in, in Florida and other states around the rights of farm workers and, and low-wage workers. We, we're hearing about people um, you know, uh, who who don't have health care, but who are are canceling medical debt and are are figuring out ways to get people um, uh, health care and other other ways of of you know kind of thriving and 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 the list kind of goes on and people are doing some heroic organizing work and movement building work and and it that's what it's going to take. Um, uh, it, it's not. We're not going to be able to alleviate. Uh, we're not going to be able to eliminate poverty by by you know by uh, just tinkering at the edges. We're gonna. It's going to take a, a a reconstruction. It's going to take a transformation. It's going to take a building from the bottom up. Um, uh, and we've had those before. Other parts of the world have had those before. We've we've seen movements in this country um, achieve that kind of justice and. Um, and so I, I invite people to to get involved and stay involved um, in in that kind of organizing work because because um, it's it's our hope, it's our hope. So uh, to you, what explains then? We've been talking about organizing today. Uh, to you, what explains why the left is behind the right, as you argue, when it comes to building durable and lasting organized communities? What explains why the left is behind the right on that? So. I would say that there is some amazing organizing taking place, but we just don't always hear about it as much. Um, and and when we do hear about it, um, uh, you know, um, it's often in kind of limited ways. And so I, I would want to suggest that there is powerful organizing. Um, uh, sometimes we we try to not necessarily use this dichotomy of the left versus the right, but instead look at right versus wrong, because we've had people from all walks of life who are poor and low income um, come together and band together and and organize together. But um, but there is there's powerful work going on right now. But the status quo um, uh, would, you know, doesn't benefit from from the kind of organizing and movement building and the durable coalition building that that 
um, that folks that are are trying to expand voting rights and trying to increase wages and and trying to you know have build communities that are um, that are kind of as full and inclusive and loving and just um, as we need them to be. You know, at the same time, what we've seen over the past years is is the growth of um, of extremist um, views and of of communities and a political movement um, that you know uh, associates itself with with some forms of kind of Christian nationalism and white supremacy, um, and and surely is is gaining strength. Um, but but at the same time, as that that political movement of white Christian nationalists is gaining strength, there is amazing work happening in our communities, but we're just not hearing about it as much and we're not paying as much attention to it. And and I think if we could turn our attention to, you know, the folks that are are um, fashioning the food distribution programs that they're doing and mutual aid um, work that they're a part of into, into something that's that's durable and lasting. Um, the the low-wage workers that are are organizing and forming, you know, uh, durable and lasting unions, you know, the the um, the uh, racial justice um, organizers who, you know, have have for uh, for more than a decade now been just holding our nation up and seeing that that we we have to abolish systemic racism i mean this this is actually happening we just we don't hear about it enough um so i i'm hoping we can tell some of those stories because what i know is that movements begin with the telling of untold stories and some of those untold stories are you know the very heroic work that people are doing in communities rural urban suburban exurban um across the country across all lines of difference across race and geography um but pulling people into a, a broad um kind of view that that says that this is not as good as it gets and we can actually you know abolish racism and poverty and ecological devastation and um this we can push back against this false narrative um and we can um you know uh, kind of end the militarization of our communities and and we can live full and, and beautiful lives just two more questions for you you had another article in december at tom dispatch where you talk about going to uh, Washington, D.C.'s Union Station and seeing how there are no more benches or anywhere to sit for anybody because what they've done, as you saw again at New York's Penn Station, they've made these public spaces inhospitable to the homeless. This gets gets us back to the discussion we were having towards the beginning about the cognitive dissonance that we have about this being the wealthiest country in the world, yet we have people increasingly who are unhoused. Then you explain about even uh, New York Mayor Eric Adams recently announced that the city would soon begin involuntarily institutionalizing homeless people. What is the point of this cruelty? Why punish the poor? What is it that they are believed to have done wrong that deserves punishment? And does punishment work to get help and get people and help them out of poverty? So punishment doesn't work. We know that. Um, but I think that the, the the reason that we have so much policy violence and so much kind of punishing of the poor in our political system is because, um, uh, you know, we have we have politicians and mayors who are trying to, you know, turn cities and municipalities into 
uh, you know, playgrounds for the rich. Um, and we're trying to kind of push the problem under the rug. I mean, somehow, instead of spending time and resources on trying to uh, come up with real solutions to homelessness and poverty, um, you know, a whole public spaces are designed now to be homeless proof. Um, uh, you know, if we took that engineering if we took that resource, if we took that time into actually putting forward solutions to the real problems that are affecting our society, we'd have them, right? Um, but it would mean, you know, that the very rich would have a little less. Um, it would mean that the kind of political power of of those right now would, would be a, a little more muted um, because we'd actually have a fuller democracy where people from very diverse, you know, walks of life would be having more power and more say um and and more of a of a um you know and and getting more of the kind of winnings of society um so i i really believe that 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 we pathologize and we punish um the poor as a way to you know try to build some kind of barriers and and dif distances between uh people um you know uh um you know, when when we when we when we focus on, you know, the the differences that we have between a homeless community and a low wage worker community and a, a immigrant community and a, um, a community that's been ravaged by police violence, um, uh, instead of, of seeing how all of those communities can come together and organize together and, and put forward a, a vision that that um, uh, that everybody should be in and nobody should be out, that then um, that that's where the change is going to come. But right now, the the time and the resources and the attention is at keeping us all apart and 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 um, and 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 kind of othering, um, othering those who, uh, you know, who have been failed by society by saying that they have failed. Um, but again, you know, uh, what our kind of moral foundations have said, what the Constitution raises, what, you know, different sacred texts and traditions remind us is that um, how a society treats um, uh, those who are marginalized and, and struggling is, is the best way to judge a society. And so, you know, that's a real indictment on these United States because uh, we have... Um, a lot of folks that are hurting, and it just doesn't have to be. We have been speaking with theologian, ordained minister, anti-poverty organizer, and activist Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who returns to the show to discuss her most recent writing at Tom Dispatch, including Poverty Amid Plenty, A World Fragmented by Inequality. One last question for you, Liz, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is... As you may remember, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write, for me, a democratic society means that everyone, including the poor, has a say in how our lives are lived and workplaces organized. It's a society in which the homeless aren't criminalized, the health of workers is protected, and people are treated with dignity by a government of their choice. And I truly believe that when you strip away the partisan rhetoric and political spin, this is a vision shared by a majority of Americans. So you want more local input, more local control. control. Uh, uh, they're necessary to have greater democracy. But what happens when local control goes wrong and suddenly you have books being banned from schools across the country? How can we have greater democracy that is not vulnerable to 
or as exploitable by those whose politics lean more in a direction toward fascism. So I want to say that when it comes to stuff like banning books and in school districts, this isn't the the will of the majority of people. Um, uh, and and I think to 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 imagine that a, a fuller and truer democracy will mean uh, uh, that that a few people who have been making a lot of decisions for a lot of people right now. Um, uh, sorry, I should say it a different way. I, I think that it's in, important for us to to recognize that actually what a fuller democracy brings is more opinions and more views and more experiences, especially experiences of of folks that have been marginalized by society. And so, uh, again, I think we we hear and and the media is really good at this, and I think politicians are really good at this, that, that, you know, uh, trying to um, push back against, you know, wokeness or whatever is 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 what's happening in a place like Florida. But but the reality is, is that um, a, a political movement of extremists have have taken over and have organized themselves into into lots of local places. But it's not it's not coming from the local areas. It's it's that that is something that's coming from outside. It's coming from, uh, you know, an ideology of extremism, of racism, of white supremacy. Um, and it's 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 surely, uh, you know, there have been communities and, and people that have have had those views before. But but the idea of opening up our democracies to be able to actually, you know, uh, encompass and incorporate, uh, especially poor and low income people um, who right now do not believe that their voices are being heard, that their votes matter, and that they can have any impact on society. This is the direction we need to go. Um, not one where actually a very few people are able to, you know, keep control of lots of things um, uh, and, and especially the resources tied to them. Um, and so, I, I, when I travel around the country, I see and meet tons of people from all kinds of walks of life, from across much diversity, who, who, you know, are are good and decent and want what's best for their communities and their families and their kids and people that look like them and lo- don't look anything like them. Um, and and so I have great hope that that things can change. Um, and and I truly believe that um, by empowering people and building power of people that that we can make this country um, something that has never been um, and that is inclusive and beautiful and abundant for all. And that's a really good point to make that these, you know, a lot of people have this kind of anti-rural feeling where, oh, it's these people who are out in the sticks who are coming up with these crazy ideas. You're absolutely right. These are not homegrown ideas. These are ideas that are being uh, created at a national level and then being force fed onto people who deserve much better. Liz, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show again. It's a a total pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Chuck. All right. Take care. That, again, is uh, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. You can follow her on Twitter 
at Liz Theo, and I strongly suggest that you do. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And if what you just heard from Liz on how the horrible, disturbing normalization of poverty and how poor people actually can lead us to a revolution against inequality, if you like that, Show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or by subscribing to our This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Thursday morning. Podcast shortly after again at patreon.com slash this is hell, putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And on our most recent Patreon podcast this past uh, Thursday, It was This Week in Hell, our semi-regular review of what we learned, or at least what I learned on This is Hell during the past week. And what I learned from our guests last week was pretty freaking hellish. First, there was our conversation with Rolling Stone's Aswan Subsang on his exclusive writing about the former President Donald Trump's re-election campaign, which according to Swin's sources, and denied by the Trump campaign, despite a staff member then admitting to the allegations... Uh, is, uh, you know, toying with the idea of rhetoric that includes firing squads and mass, mass executions of all federal death row inmates and each and every drug dealer, uh, because in Trump's fantasy freakout world, on average, every drug dealer kills 500 people during their career, which would be frightening if true, but it's completely made up. After Swin talked about the death fetish of Trump and the far right, as well as Republicans and even conservatives in the Democratic Party, uh, he moved on to the bipartisan hypocrisy of both parties, saying their opponents are trying to get them kicked off Twitter, when in fact, both parties are trying to limit each other's free speech. That's what's actually going on. One party says, Democrats are kicking us offline. Then the Democrats come out and say, the Republicans are kicking us offline. No, both of them are trying to kick off each other. Then we had our talk with New Republic's Prem Thacker, and that was equally, if not more disturbing, when he reported from the front lines of the East Palestine, Ohio toxic train derailment, and how it is a perfect example of the horrors that can be unleashed upon us when a government is being run like a business and allowing the private sector to rule the public. It's proof positive that neoliberalism is a failure, and the only reason it has not been abandoned yet is because the media, government, corporate, industrial complex will not allow discussions that in any way critique or point out the shortcomings of what we all hope is late capitalism. But our coverage of East Palestine didn't stop there as we spoke with Kerry Leiterson, who had just written an In These Times article on a solution that can make it so this kind of toxic train derailment will be far less likely to ever happen again, and that is nationalization, which again will not be reported on or covered by the media, government, corporate, industrial complex. In the end, it all revealed how much hate, violence, death, hypocrisy and greed we inexplicably put up with every day from our leaders and those who are supposed to provide oversight in what is allegedly a democracy. In fact, it appears the biggest threat to the power structure of the United States today is actual democracy. That's why they fight against it. Also on Patreon, we have played interviews in the past from 2007 and 2008 that essentially predicted exactly what is happening in Ukraine today. But those weren't the only times we had guests saying that what would and what did happen, warnings that they had been, had they been heeded, could have actually avoided the war and destruction of Ukraine. But they were not because both sides seemed to have a bloodlust for a return of the Cold War, that they just wanted to make it a bit hotter this time. 
So last week on Patreon, in recognition of the first anniversary of this war's beginning, we launched what will be a three-week series featuring interviews with other past guests who told us the U.S.-Russia proxy war in Ukraine was inevitable and unavoidable years before the first bullets were shot. So last week we shared an interview from 2014 with Ukrainian political scholar Nikolai Petro, who at the time reported to us from Odessa in Crimea about his then just posted article at The Nation titled Threat of Military Confrontation Grows in Ukraine. Nicholas, uh, Nikolai has a new book out called The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution, a book that he wrote right before the war started, and it's coming out in uh, March, and we hope to have Nikolai back on the show to discuss it. This week, we continue that series by playing a 2008 interview with defense analyst Ivan Eland, who had just written the story Mixed Truth of the Russia-Georgia War, which gives some of the origin story for the current war in Ukraine. Then during our third and final week of our series of interviews on Ukraine that are not available anywhere else online, we will be offering a 2015 talk we had with Ukrainian journalist Volodymyr Ishenko, who had reported for The Guardian that Ukraine switched rulers, but not the ruling class. According to Volodymyr, President Zelensky is from the same corrupt ruling class that was overthrown nearly a decade ago. But you can only hear all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Where are you going to go? Uh, Patreon, Twitter, Facebook, where are you going to have your answers from? Suppose Patreon. We have a few on Patreon. Okay. Uh, this week's question from Hal. What are you giving up for Lent? From Margaret C. The ship. <laughs> She's giving, giving up, up the, the ship. ship. <laughs> okay. Uh, Todd H. is giving up prestidigitation. 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 Yes. What is that? (laughs) I can't remember now. (laughs) Uh, The ability to move your fingers well, I guess. Um, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Craig J. is giving up the ghost. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, We didn't say give up the blank, but they can do that. uh, What are you giving up for Lent? Neil C. is giving up my Nickelback CD collection. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I think you're giving that up permanently. <laughs> uh, Tim C is giving up Instatogram Twit Book. <laughs> okay. Instatogram Twit Book. All right. <laughs> A combination and of then, every social media platform that could fit, in, fit into two words. And then from L. O. Ryan, they're giving up Lent. <laughs> all right, that's a good one to give up. Yep, and that's all of our Patreon sponsors. All right, let's go to Facebook and Twitter on uh, coming up shows so we can get to Sebastian. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We will be announcing uh, this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So send in your answers to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet them at us at This Is Hell Radio. Post them at chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you are a Patreon patron, post them at Patreon. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. 
But now it's time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. It is week four, the final week of Black History Month, the month that makes people who have been failed by the educational system say, but what about white history month? Welcome. Get comfy, get a drink. We're all friends here. So in the past three weeks, I have repeatedly stated that what I'm doing here is deliberately highlighting systems of oppression and various atrocities committed by white people on black people over the long span of American history. Yes, there are other people out there who approach Black History Month differently, instead highlighting black achievements and progress made for and by black people, which is fine. Please, nobody ever believe that whatever approach to whatever kind of history I present here is the only correct approach. Maybe with the exception of Holocaust denial or just denial of atrocities in general, be it against Jews, Armenians, Herero, Mau Mau, Dakotas, the countless tribes of West Africa, atrocity denial usually doesn't fly. I do highlight atrocities against black people in American history precisely because there is still so much denial about those things out there. And as I repeatedly say here, I am born and raised German and my people learn a lot about the atrocities our ancestors committed in school, like throughout basically all of primary education and secondary education, mostly in secondary education. Anyway, who cares? Uh, and even that doesn't completely inoculate us from still being occasionally anti-Semitic and oftentimes pretty damn racist still. And even though this is the fourth and final installment, I will only ever have scratched the surface of this whole topic. Another, another thing I hope everybody listening to this understands is that I make no claim to what I'm talking about here being in any way exhaustive. I won't even get to mention some of the bigger things like Black Wall Street and the burning of it. If you want to really dig deep into this, read a few books. I will give a few sources on the website, so visit thisisl.com and get learned if you want to know more. So today I want to talk about the unholy marriage of Jim Crow and the Red Scare. The Jim Crow system in the American South was a system of laws, customs, and outright vigilante violence that was designed to keep free black people basically in the same place that they had occupied during the times of slavery before the Civil War. This system came to maturity around the turn of the 20th century. Americans in the early 20th century were throughout pretty much mind-bogglingly racist. It is really hard to overstate how bad that was at the time. In 1915, the second Ku Klux Klan was founded in Stone Mountain, Georgia, brought back to life by, among other things, one of the first feature-length movies, Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. And this second clan quickly grew to be much, much more successful than its predecessor had ever been. At its peak in the 1920s, the second clan had somewhere in the realm of 8 million members across the United States, not just in the South. And that was about 6.5% of all Americans. For comparison's sake, about 2% of all Americans today are Jewish, so you can sort of see... Uh, the kind of the magnitude that <laughs> where clan membership was back in the day. Um, and this clan sold itself as an upstanding fraternal organization that just bound people together who shared the common interest of um, 
hating black people and Jews and a lot of other things, Catholics among them for some reason, which is just something I always find fascinating. One of the central themes of the movie Birth of a Nation and of the then new and hip field of race science or eugenics was the idea that lesser people of the world would outbreed the more fit ones. And also that the lesser people of the world would seek to mix and mingle their tainted blood with the superior stock of the white Nordic races. The virtue of the white woman in particular was endangered by the lustful and sexually insatiable Negro. White clansmen, the noble knights of Ku Klux, rescue many a white damsel from the clutches of a black rapist who wishes to soil the white race with his vile seed in this film. Of course, the black rapists are not portrayed by black actors, but instead by white guys in black face paint. Again, this is one of the reasons why you should never, ever, ever, ever do blackface, um, just as an aside. And in that, the movie reflected a widespread fear of white people at the time. <laughs> Good one. At the time. Non-white people knocking up white women and degrading the nor noble Nordic races is still a pretty damn big fear of many a bigot today. The more things change, I guess. Well, this is past and set the present after all, but I digress. What eventually really rattled those who championed Jim Crow, who had become Klan members who financed and directed statues to the Confederate traitors to the Union in the 1920s and onwards, was communism. The Russian Revolution of 1917 that eventually birthed the Soviet Union would further down the line provide a boogeyman like no other to those people. An early example of the confluence of Red Scare and Jim Crow was the case of the Scottsboro Boys. Nine black teenagers between the ages of 13 and 20 were accused of raping two white women on a train going through Alabama in 1931. The boys were then thrown into the Southern quote-unquote legal system with all white juries, since jury duty was reserved for voters and black people were, as we discussed last week, excluded from voting through uh, various means, and all white judges who quickly sentenced all the boys to death by the electric chair. But then the case was appealed with legal help from the Communist Party of America and the National Association of Colored People. The case, or rather the cases, then went on for years and years with the boys who grew to be men in prison, ultimately not really getting actual justice. But the involvement of the Communist Party, which, as Jason Sokol writes in There Goes My Everything, tried using this case to highlight the horrors of the Jim Crow system. Um, and But ultimately, the Communist Party only served to prove to the white American South that communists were in league with the blacks. Black people who sought civil rights were actually, in the eyes of the Southerners, only fooled by the communists and used as unwitting tools to upset the Southern social order. Northern whites who supported equal rights of black people were then quickly seen as outside agitators and as the hated Yankees who wanted to keep the South down by enabling the Negro through communist means now. In the white Southern mindset and in the mindset of the Klan, uppity black people, Jews, communists, and Catholics, again, and labor unions, all melded into one dreadful chimera that sought to erase the color line and enable, as in the case of the Scottsboro Boys, black men raping and, uh, you know, replacing white people, white women. 
Red Scare, Jim Crow fueled what historian Jeff Woods described as Southern nationalism. Brown v. Board of Education was seen as a communist plot by a federal government that had been subverted by communist agents. The proof? Washington tried to desegregate the South. That obviously had to be a communist plot. Putting black people on the same level as white people was perceived as an unacceptable outside influence bent on destroying this hallowed Southern social order. In response to that, Southerners doubled down. More statues of Confederate losers went up. The Stars and Bars replaced the Stars and Stripes. Dixie replaced the National Anthem. Southern anti-communism then grew stronger as the civil rights movement grew in parallel. Southern nationalists then could tie any opposition to the Southern social order to the biggest enemy of the United States at large, communism. As the involvement of uh, the Communist Party in the Scottsboro cases shows, however, they had, to a degree, a point. Socialism, communism, radical left ideas were all things that attracted those black people seeking to actually change their situation. Richard Wright's Native Son, that seminal novel, uh, you know, like if you haven't read Native Son, like what are you doing? Go ahead and read it. Um, uh, it also deals with this intersection of American communists and black people, which really demonstrates that there were, there were in fact actual connections between civil rights struggles and the American far left that existed at the time. Uh, just as a side note, we don't really have much of a far left in the United States at this point in time. That's just not really a thing that exists. But anyway, an unforeseen and unintended consequence of the Southern Red Scare and communist assistance in civil rights struggle was, however, an acceleration of the civil rights movement rather than, than an impediment. Moscow could use American resistance to abandoning, uh, to abandoning Jim Crow and widespread civil rights issues as a propaganda effort towards the rest of the world. So... On a federal level, the efforts in, to indeed disrupt the Southern social order were actually an effort to counter communism, not to aid it. The North, however, was not much better, not quite as grotesquely and violently racist as the South, sure, but not much better. After all, the Klan bought up or almost bought up Valparaiso University in Indiana in the 1920s, for example. Also, let's not forget that Chicago in 1919 had a week-long race riot during which roaming gangs of white Chicagoans ran through black neighborhoods seeking to beat their black countrymen to a bloody pulp. But all over the North, as in the South, black Americans were frequently also the victims of environmental racism. This meant that industrial production dumped toxic wastes in and around black neighborhoods. Here, of course, again, the confluence of race and class comes up. These neighborhoods were poor and poor neighborhoods lack lobbying power. However, in the case of 20th century America, black neighborhoods were also redlined neighborhoods. That meant that black people would not be able to get the loans needed to buy houses or rent outside of neighborhoods designated as black by real estate agents. So when the industrial waste ended up dumped in these areas, black people could not easily just pack up and move away. Uh, so they ended up having to bear the burden of American progress. And there is, of course, also a direct connection between the free reign that industrial producers like U.S. Steel and Gary, Indiana, enjoyed to pollute the environment in the name of progress in the 20th century to today's East Palestine disaster of 2023, just that East Palestine is a mostly white town this time. But do not for a second buy into any nonsense that this is somehow a quote-unquote Joe Biden does not care about white people moment. Black people across the country have suffered, suffered much, much worse for much, much longer in terms of environmental hazards and disasters. I mean, just look up Cancer Valley in, uh, 
in 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 the south and and all, all of these things to say nothing about the whole thing where railroad companies have since their inception in the mid 19th century been major corruptors of american politics uh but all of that is another story for another time i don't think i will ever run out of topics here i mean this is hell after all so, yeah, and they're having a huge issue down on the south side right now because uh, the same area that got uh, had the horrible environmental situation with the Hillco uh, coal-fired plant, mm-hmm. that same neighborhood is where Norfolk Southern runs their freight trains through. <laughs> and now they want Norfolk Southern to consider maybe not running those 150-car-long uh, uh, trains with just one worker on them through the south side because who knows where I mean what's happening in East Palestine is obviously horrible imagine if it happened in an area as dense as the south side of Chicago mm. when it comes to population it would just be so much worse Sebastian great to hear your voice again we're against the clock so until next time great to hear Hi. your voice All right, <laughs> always great to be here take care so Lindsay, we did uh, the page, we did a question from Hell, so I guess all I need to know is who is our next guest here on This Is Hell. All right, hey, uh, it's got, Will. You've got me again, Chuck. Sweet. Um, next week we're having our next guest is uh, Dan Colbert or Colbert. I believe um, it's Colbert. It's Colbert. All right, with a K. Uh, is co-author along with Chris Briley, Michael Maines, and Emily Matram of. Pretty Good House, A Guide to Creating Better Homes. See, you don't have to have a McMansion. Dan has been carpenter and contractor in Portland, Maine for three decades. He's written for various trade publications, including Fine Home Building Magazine. And for the past 10 years, he has been moderator of the original building science discussion group in Portland, Maine, where the Pretty Good House idea originated. You can see Dan's work at colbertbuilding.com, again with a K. Uh, And you can follow Dan's work on Instagram at colbertbuilding. Yeah, and check out uh, the website for Fine Home Building Magazine. They have this kind of uh, tutorial there called the Sustainable Home Building Accelerator e-learning series. So check that out at finehomebuilding.com because that was started by one of Dan's uh, co-authors, Emily Matram. And we still do not have uh, our final guest for the week confirmed. If there is someone you would like to hear on Wednesday's show or a topic you would like to hear discussed, email me at chuck at thisisl.com. We'll see if we can get your guest suggestion on the show or someone to speak about your recommended topic. Also coming up later this week, we'll have This Week in Rotten History. We'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast. We'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. We'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. And uh, I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Lindsay Gorey. With her has been Will Ippen. Thanks to Lindsay and Will. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>